You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Welcome, everybody. And before we begin, and perhaps sometimes we say this as if it's sort of like a bit of a throwaway, but it's so important for us, isn't it, to acknowledge that we meet today on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And the university is very aware that we are on the lands and we teach and we practice and we research on the lands of the Gadigal people and we pay respects to their elders past, present and future. And I'm reminded, as we are being reminded at the moment by our Indigenous brothers and sisters, of the importance to listen and to listen to other people's stories. And I think we're going to hear some really... um, well, a very interesting story from our speakers, speaker tonight. My name is Leanne Cutcher and I'm a professor uh, here in the Business School. Business School Sydney University has a pumping heart, you'll be glad to know. And I'm the head of the Strategy Innovation Entrepreneurship Group. And I think I'm here because uh, we've got very active members uh, in my group who are members of the Sydney Environment Institute, but also because uh, some of my research has been looking particularly at the role of uh, social enterprises and social entrepreneurship and thinking about alternative ways of organising because it's my, I'd like to propose to you that some of the current ways of organising in organisations are really not serving us very well. So that's that's me and my motivation and it's my absolute pleasure um, to thank the Sydney Environment Institute for hosting tonight and for those of you who would like to tweet please note that it's hashtag climate frontline and tagging at SEI underscore Sydney and at Sydney underscore ideas. So please tweet away because it sends the message out there, um, which is such an important thing for us to do. I'm going to introduce our three speakers and then um, Sechu Dolma will come to the to the podium and give us her presentation. So Sechu Dolma was born in Tibetan, to Tibetan refugee parents in Nepal. Seshu moved to the United States as a young girl, and she is the founder of the Mountain Resiliency Project, a not-for-profit social enterprise which is dedicated to building climate change resilient communities through women's empowerment in sustainable agribusiness. Her interest in refugee rights and biodiversity conservation, climate change policy and inclusive development have been featured in Reuters, Forbes, ABC News, the Sierra Club. She has been recognised by Forbes as one of the 30 under 30 in social entrepreneurship. She is also a Fulbright Clinton Fellow, an Echoing Green Fellow and a Bauer Youth Award winner. Very, very impressive. I think you'll agree. And you'll sort of be more impressed when she gets up here and stands up and you realise how, how, that she really is young. So she has a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Science and an MPA in Economic Development from Columbia University in New York. And then we've got two people who are going to be, in effect, responding to what Seishon's got to say to us. And it's my absolute pleasure to introduce or to welcome Kinzom Dongdu, who is the Executive and Campaign Officer of Australian Tibet Council. Welcome. And she is, which is a leading organisation for campaigning for the human rights and freedoms of Tibetans. And I know we've got a lot of people who are connected to the work of that organisation, so I welcome you too. She is also the member of the Tibetan Parliament in Exile, based in Dharmasala in northern India. Kinzom was born to, also born to Tibetan refugee parents in India and was schooled at the Tibetan Children's Village. 
After studying at Delhi University, Kingsorn worked as a journalist for the Times of India and the Asian Age. She has lived in Australia and is a valuable member of our community uh, since 2006. And then finally, I'd like to welcome Robin Aldous, who is a professor of food and nutrition science here at the security here in the Faculty of Science at the University of Sydney. And she's also a principal fellow in School of Life and Environmental Science and a member of the Sydney Institute of Agriculture and the Charles Perkins Centre, where she convenes the joint Charles Perkins Centre Mari Bashir Institute project node on healthy food systems, nutrition, diversity and safety. For over 20 years, she has been working uh, with small farm holder farmers in Africa and Asia as a veterinarian re researcher and a colleague. And she also has her own farm here uh, in Crookwell. So she's experiencing the reality of being a farmer in Australia at the moment. I think she's going to talk to us a bit about that. So Robin's research interests include domestic and global food and national security systems, planetary health, gender equity, and science communication. I think you'll agree we've got three incredibly fascinating people who are going to talk to us tonight, and I really look forward to hearing from them and like you to join me in welcoming them. So I'm going to hand over to Seishu Dolma, who's going to speak to us about life in Tibet on the front line of climate change. Thank you. Thank you, Leanne. Oh, good evening. And I'm so excited to see so many people here. Um, I just got to Australia from New York um, two days ago, and I, wasn't, I didn't know what winter in August felt like. So this is my first time. And I also came down with a bit of cold from the uh, weather shock. But, uh, but yeah. Um, thank you all for being here, and um, so currently my job is a social entrepreneur. Um, I'm a social entrepreneur who works with um, mountain people in Nepal and India and Tibet, and um, over there I work with mostly women farmers around sustainable livelihoods, um, but, um, so, and I've been doing this since 2014. Um, but today I really wanted to reflect on how I came on this journey of becoming a social entrepreneur around climate change and um, like what are the true roots behind my um, environmental activism and my values around land ethic and food ethic and, um, and my personal politics too. And so I... Um, I was born in Nepal, but my parents, um, they left Tibet in 1959, and um, after they left, uh, there was the Cultural Revolution happened, um, millions of people died all over China from starvation. Um, in Tibet, uh, there was a cultural genocide, but around the 80s, there was a true, um, there was an opening up of the country. Um, China started democratizing a little bit, and at that time, my parents went back um, in the early 90s. So after I was born, I was able to live in Tibet um, in the early 90s um, till 95. And um, I grew up in northeastern Tibet um, around Kham. So this is present-day Sichuan province. And when I was growing up there, um, mining was a huge issue. Mining was something that you could see in, at our doorstep. Um, there was a lot of gold mining. There was a lot of deforestation that was happening at that time. And I remember um, 
there was a lot of, um, like I was a small child, um, but I remember there was a lot of whispered conversations around the community around um, how our personal, um, our personal understanding of the environment, the land, was directly in conflict with the state politics around development. And um, so I, like, even as a child, I knew something was wrong, but I knew these were conversations we couldn't have in public places. So at a very young age, I was exposed to this notion of um, the sense of place, um, a sense of land ethic, the sense of um, what is our cultural, est uh, the cultural ontologies and epistemologies um, say about our understanding of the land. And I, and I knew that um, I lived in a, oh, sorry, I have to turn this on. I knew that I lived in a truly beautiful, um, in a truly beautiful part of the world where we had mountains everywhere. My parents, um, my families, um, we are traditionally nomads. And um, even to this day, my, my father's siblings and my mom's siblings, they still continue to live a nomadic lifestyle inside Tibet. And we're in constant touch with them. And so I knew I, was, I lived, um, I lived in uh, this beautiful place with mountains everywhere. Um, but I didn't know at that time that these mountains that I lived around and like called my playground were actually feeding um, a third of the world's population. Um, that the glaciers in Tibet, um, there's around 32,000 of them um, inside the Chinese occupied part of Tibet. And um, in this part of the Himalayas, um, the water from here directly feeds into um, it directly feeds into the rest of Asia. And um, in this map, you can just get a general sense of how um, our glaciers, um, the downstream communities from our glaciers and from our rivers um, directly support um, how food moves around um, how food moves around the world. So I'm from the U.S., and in the U.S., we are heavily, heavily reliant on our food coming from Southeast Asia. And how much of that um, the Tibetan plateau plays a huge role in. And so I knew the mountains were important. I knew they were the source of water. I also knew that um, in Tibet, the mountains are also, um, we have this uh, traditional concept called yula. So yula literally means um, the spirit of the land. And I, I know uh, I'm not really familiar with Australian history, but I do understand the same concepts around um, dignifying um, indigenous knowledge and traditions around um, land stewardship. Uh, it kind of rings true uh, between, um, like among the most of indigenous communities in the world. And so I knew as a kid this concept behind Yula, um, the spirit of the land, and how um, it was our job as local people to take care of our land so that we wouldn't have um, tragedies in the form of floods, um, earthquakes, uh, fire, disasters. And I knew um, we were supposed to be stewards of the land, but I also knew that we couldn't be fully, um, we couldn't fully be stewards of the land because of the Chinese politics at that time. So at that time in Tibet, um, in the early 90s, there was a lot of um, uncontrolled mining that was happening, and there was also a huge state push around um, state push around 
opening up the West, as they call it in, in Chinese policies. Um, this open up the West policy was directly bringing in millions, uh, like hundreds of thousands of Han migrants from mainland China into Tibet. And they were directly coming into our areas. Um, we, don't, we don't speak the same language. We don't have the same cultural knowledge. Um, so it was really difficult um, I remember the ethnic tension that would form within our villages um, because we couldn't understand what the Han migrants were saying or what the miners were saying. So uh, there was a direct clash that was happening around um, the fact that we were supposed to be stewards of the land, where at the same time our agency around being the stewards was taken away from us. So, um, so yeah, these were like... Um, values and questions that I had growing up that really stuck to me. And I remember when, um, when we, in 95, when my family moved from Tibet to Nepal, uh, we, we went overland. Um, it wasn't a dramatic escape through the high mountains, but we did ride a truck. And I remember on the truck ride, um, it took us a month to get from northeastern Tibet to Nepal. Um, during that journey, I could see the physical change in landscape from high altitude, arid desert, um, and coming down through the Nepali border. And like in the border, you'll see um, some of the steepest um, like rivers in the world. Um, you come down that, and then you come into like lush green um, Nepal. And and I could tell as a kid, even this um, this very this change in geography. Um, was not just the change in landscape, but it was also a change in how we expressed ourselves, um, the conversations we were able to have. So once we got into Nepal, um, we didn't have to whisper about um, the spirit of the land. We could easily, um, we could easily have conversations about um, the, what our personal politics were and what we thought uh, should happen inside our communities. And then I grew up in a Tibetan refugee camp inside Nepal. And um, so with these questions, um, I moved to New York when I was 10 years old. And in college, um, I really wanted to study anthropology because um, I knew uh, if I studied economics um, or if I studied uh, economics or any kind of science-related things, I knew that we needed numbers. Um, numbers were super important to make your point. But with numbers, um, it was really difficult with Tibet because according to the numbers in Tibet, um, it looks really great. Like in the last 10 years, the government has already put in um, around $2.5 billion just into ecological parks. Um, the numbers are great in terms of how much money the government is spending on um, clean energy, how much money the government is spending on welfare in Tibet, how much money the government is um, spending on just building all these really wonderful infrastructure. Um, but I knew there was something wrong with it because I was like, the numbers I'm seeing right now, it's not, um, it does not tell the true story of what's happening inside Tibet. So, so I knew I wanted to be an anthropologist uh, and do ethnographic study. And and I thought eth um, ethnographic studies would tell stories of what's happening inside Tibet, um, with how climate change is impacting daily lives, how um, our relationship with our rivers, our sacred lakes, our mountains. Um, 
So I knew that. But then once I got to uh, being a second year student at university, um, my visas um, to China was always rejected. So it was not possible for me to, this is a story for almost all Tibetans. Um, if you apply for a Chinese visa, you get immediately shut down or they give you a really hard time to get a visa. And you have to make yourself seem as innocuous as possible. And so with these numbers, um, so it was really hard for me. So then I thought, okay, I'll study environmental science. And I studied environmental science and I went on to do research on glaciers in Nepal. But, um, but I still wanted to understand what's happening inside Tibet with um, the people. So there's all these money going in, but then what about, um, like what about the true reality on ground that the money is not matching the outcome? Because we're still seeing a lot of ethnic tensions inside the country. There's still self-immolations going on. Um, there's still a lot of protests inside the country, um, whether it's at mining sites or at schools. Um, Tibetans are protesting against, um, against the current policies. So um, with my phone, uh, we all have, um, most people in Tibet use WeChat. And so I was able to have conversations with, um, with my family members inside and also with um, other experts who can freely travel into Tibet. Um, using their information to see what was happening on the ground. And um, I learned that, um, I learned um, how development can have a lot of uh, disempowerment. So the disempowerment of development and the dispossession of development and how much that was impacting Tibetans inside Tibet. And I saw that, um, I saw that nomads, um, so within my family, my father's sister and brother, they still live in Tibet. Um, they still live in northeastern part of Tibet, and they've been living nomadic lives for, for, like for, for generations. But um, two years ago, um, all of our nomadic, um, like our pasture land that we share with other families, all of, the, all of that land was taken away from us. Um, well, they were taken away as in they gave us financial compensation for it, but this land was directly, um, it's now being used to build a new airport in the area. And this airport, um, it's not meant to serve the Tibetan people. Um, it's meant to bring in more tourists. Um, a, tourist, a tourism business that is very extractive, a tourism business that um, does not empower that does not economically empower the local people at all. And instead, it continues to exacerbate um, uh, losing local, um, local rights over um, local resources. So, so that's what I heard from my family. And then, um, thank you. And then I wanted to learn about the, what was my mother's family doing in the southern part of Tibet. So my mother's brother, his daughter, sorry, it's not a family story, but, um, but I knew that my cousin, who was my age, um, there's a lot of development around her. So she lives right, they're the nearest village from um, Mount Everest Base Camp, uh, um, the northern part of Mount Everest Base Camp. And from her story, I learned that um, there's a lot of money going in, like there's billions of dollars put into uh, Tibet Autonomous Region. 
um, and that they're building all these hydro dams and they're building um, so a lot of hydro dams so that there's no blackouts in Tibet anymore. Um, a lot of mining sites where they're not hiring any local people, but they're hiring a lot of Han migrants. And then um, nowadays there's a lot of water bottling companies inside Tibet. And I found out that um, even though there's all these businesses that generate hundreds of millions of dollars a year, um, when she w went into labor to give birth, um, she she died on her way to the um, she died on the way to the hospital, uh, even though the hospital was the hospital was 250 kilometers away from her, and this is supposed to be um, she lives right inside the um, Mount Everest National Park, which is supposed to be super developed and where the government um, constantly says that they're doing great. Um, great measures to protect the environment and also respect indigenous people within the land. Um, but that is not the case. And um, I'm not an expert, but I could tell from the stories I was, like I'm still hearing now from Tibet in terms of um, the, what's going on with the land and the people who live around the land. And so, um, so then here's a map. Um, so. So I knew there was a lot of mining going on, a lot of development going on. Um, the only long-term development projects that are happening inside the country is mining and hydropower. And with hydropower, um, a lot of the huge mega dams are supposed to start construction in 2020. And in this map, um, you can see the different types of metals they're um, mining inside Tibet and then this is a map for all the mega dams they're going to be building in all of China, but you can see how much is concentrated around southern, um, around like southern Tibet, um, southwestern Tibet, southeastern Tibet, and so all of these projects, um, they do not hire uh, local Tibetans for the jobs. Uh, even if like if they do, it's a very small percentage of it, um, and. Instead, um, instead, like China keeps, um, the government keeps pushing the locals away from their land. So um, there's been a lot of, can I have the video please? Um, in this video you can see how nomads who live inside the national parks, the so-called uh, ecological, e ecological reserves, um, how much the people are being pushed out of the land, similar to what has happened to the first peoples, um, first peoples in Canada, Australia, America. So in this video, you can see um, the nomads being pushed out of the land into these reservations, and within the reservations, there's been um, there's been a lot of problem around. There's been a lot of problems around alcoholism, unemployment, um, similar to the case of Native Americans. And so now the big problem right now is that China, um, China is becoming a huge superpower in the world. Um, this, is, this is a map of the One Belt, One Road project um, that is directly impacting um, Australia too. And so as you can see, um, like China claims to be such a 
leader in um, environmental practices, in, in, in climate change, um, in climate change adaptation and mitigation. Um, but it's really not the case on the ground in Tibet. And, um, with, um, and as China continues to expand um, throughout Eurasia, Africa, um, and the Pacific region, um, it's really pro problematic um, in the fact that um, they're already uh, abusing human rights inside Tibet. Um, they're already, um, they're not doing they're not doing a good job at all in terms of ecological preservation. And that um, um, it's so important for us to, um, like, you know, the Tibetan population is like six million inside Tibet. But the environmental, the environmental impacts that happen inside Tibet um, directly impacts the rest of Asia and um, and if we cannot steward that land, because um, the people inside Tibet, um, they're still protesting. Like as of last month in July, there was another big protest in northeastern Tibet um, at a few of the mining sites, and um, a lot of people have disappeared after um, the protest. Um, so, like, it's really problematic that this is still going on, and that um, a lot of countries applaud China for being such a leader in. Um, climate change and clean energy, but um, the reality is on the ground is not the same. And that, um, in terms of numbers, it looks really great. But on the ground, with ethnographic studies, you can see that um, the dispossession, the disempowerment, um, it's so deeply seated inside Tibet right now. And I'm really afraid that if China continues to expand with this one belt, one road. Um, project around the world um, that dispossession and disempowerment can easily spread to all of these communities, um, to all of the local peoples here and um, in the Pacific region too. And, um, and yeah, losing um, community rights over local resources, it's, um, it's just such an awful thing that I've seen in my community and I would not want to see in the rest of the world. Um, yeah. Thank you so very much. It's a tough act to follow, and so I'm not going to. I'm going to go off in a slightly different tangent and it's talk a little bit about something that struck me when I read the, the brief for tonight's session, which talked about Tibetan nomads. And what struck me was the term nomad and the limitation that our English language places on us. And I think when we talk about people as nomads, I should say I'm trained as a vet, born as a farmer. I have no qualifications to talk about this. But I'm, I'm troubled. At, at uh, the ripe old age of, I don't know, 30-something, I learned Portuguese. And I learned how different the world is and how you see things differently through different languages. So coming back to English and the term nomad, and the definition from the... Uh, one of the online dictionaries, a member of a people that travels from place to place to find fresh pasture for its animals and has no permanent home. 
So they don't have the home, clearly they don't live there, so what does it matter if we move them on? Sound familiar? It does sound familiar. So I was born in Gundungara country, in, uh, near Crookwell. Um, no indigenous people at all in that area. They were not allowed to go to school in the 1940s and so really very difficult, unless you go to Queanbeyan, to find a significant indigenous population. This term nomad and the idea that because they don't have a home there that we can just move them on. And yet I think if we were to ask Tibetan nomads or pastoralists in Africa, Central Asia, what term do you have for yourself? It would not be something that equates to nomad. Because they are people, as um, Chechu explained, that have a sense of place. They absolutely belong. They're absolutely one with that place. So much are they one with that place that they don't see themselves as central. So as they start to impact and notice a change, they will move so that they live lightly in a much wider area. They move according to what the landscape can, can uh, how it can support them and they see them as themselves as one. And I think this is really something that we need to reflect on. If we think about what has caused climate change, the idea that we can continue to expand, to exploit, it's really something that we're going to have to stop and think. It may have worked when it seemed like our world had unlimited resources, I think we're kind of finding out that that's not quite the case. And I think that what we can learn from people who we call nomads, but who have lived in these places for thousands of years from indigenous Australians who have lived in this old dry continent, certainly they made some change. But by the time my, what shall we say, my boat people rocked up, um, they were living largely in harmony um, with the environment because they'd learnt how to do that. I really think the study of history and philosophy is central to finding our way forward. As a species, we've spent around 96% of our time living as hunter-gatherers, living lightly and moving. What we see and what we feel as normal now is, is very recent and we are capable of change. So I, I, I want to be able to give us that hope. And I also like, um, as I've given up a little bit on technology, we do need it, but as I've started reading philosophy, one of the things that really struck me was the move from hunter-gatherer society to more set, settled, sedentary agriculture really set in train the society that we see today. If you live in small groups, your survival depends on each other, and because you need to move, what you value is your cohesion, is your ability to work. You don't value a big house. You don't value things that you can't move because they're a burden to you. So as we became settled, we became more stratified as a society, our values started to change, and uh, as a woman, one of the things that really, really struck me in my reading was that we talk in biology about sexual dimorphism, so that the idea that 
the male and the female of the species have a different form. What I'm reading is that that sexual dimorphism in humans is more exaggerated than in most other species. What I read is that when we were hunter-gatherers, the height difference between men and women was far less than it is today. So something has happened. I grew up accepting that women are meant to be shorter, but that wasn't always the case. So I think it's not just about climate change. And uh, as I'm sure somebody has said before me, uh, one of the great things about responding to climate change is that we might end up just being happier anyway. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, so it's an absolute honor to be here tonight and talk about this important subject. I am by no means an expert on Tibetan environment, but I'll try my best. I was born uh, in a Tibetan refugee settlement in Bailukupi in South India. Uh, my parents and grandparents were uh, part of the first wave of uh, refugees who uh, escaped from Tibet uh, following uh, the footsteps of our leader, His Holiness Dalai Lama, you know, after uh, the uprising in Tibet in 1959. That's the uprising against China's occupation of Tibet. And so, yes, yeah, so I've never seen uh, physical Tibet. But when I was growing up in a boarding school, I um, had a French sponsor. And every month, we would write letters and postcards um, to our sponsors. And I would write to my French sponsor you know, postcards. And the postcard would always have a mountain, uh, a river flowing through the mountain, uh, a lovely Tibetan house, and uh, lots of yaks roaming uh, on the grasslands. And that picture has always stayed with me, even though I have, I have never seen Tibet and I've never stepped my foot on the Tibetan soil. That is because I have grown up with stories of Tibet from my grandmother. My grandmother um, came from a proud nomadic background. Uh, when I was growing up, we used to have uh, cows at our home. She used to milk the cows. We had five cows. Uh, every morning she would milk the cows, she would make butter. Um, so I grew up, you know, even though I was far removed from the physical land of Tibet, I grew up, you know, with her lifestyle, uh, listening to stories about Tibet, her life, uh, her upbringing, and what a beautiful, uh, self-sustaining uh, life it was. And so today when we talk about Tibet, I think, you know, we have a serious problem in Tibet because Tibet is trapped between two problems. One is an ancient problem and the other is a very new problem. The ancient problem is that Tibet is still facing colonialism. It's an old problem from the 18th century, from the 19th century. And in the 20th century, many countries became, became free but Tibet lost its independence, and we are still grappling with it. But today, unfortunately, Tibet is also facing a very modern challenge, a very modern problem, and that's climate change. 
So we are basically trapped between two very serious problems, colonialism on the one hand and climate change on the other. And I think to you know, understand this modern challenge, to this modern problem, we also have to understand the old challenge, the old problem, and that is Chinese occupation of Tibet. China invaded Tibet in 1959 after the Chinese Communist Party came to power in, in Beijing in 1949, and the year after they came to power, they invaded Tibet. And if you um, know Chinese, uh, the, Tibet, the Chinese word for Tibet is called Shisang. And Shisang literally means the Western treasure house. So China invaded Tibet because Tibet is rich in mineral resources. Tibet is home to around 130 uh, mineral resources, natural resources, from copper to iron ore to gold to even lithium. You know, the lithium battery that you have in your mobile phones, in your tablets, in your laptops, a lot of it comes from China. And where does the lithium battery come from? It comes from Tibet. So when China came to Tibet, they said, we are going to develop you, we are going to help you. And that's, that's what colonial powers do. When they come and invade countries, they come under the pretext of helping you. And so for the last seven decades of Chinese occupation, you know, there are two um, hallmarks of Chinese policy. On the one hand, there is so-called economic development, and on the other hand, there is the political repression. And these two are going hand in hand. Now, is it working? As Tibetans, we can say that it's not. And so now to talk about the development, one um, striking example is what they're doing to the nomads. And today we are talking about Tibetan environment and nomads traditionally made up one third of the Tibetan population. Tibetan nomads have lived sustainably on the Tibetan plateau for centuries. And you know, over the last uh, ten, 10 to 20 years, a large population of the Tibetan nomads have been forcibly removed from their grasslands, the only home that they have known for generations and they are being uprooted from the land, and not just being uprooted. As nomads, their only life, source of livelihood is the animals. The only environment they know is their land. And now being uprooted from their land, not only have they lost their home, their livelihood, but they have also lost their traditional way of life. And that's, and that's very sad. You know, the nomads are the stewards of a land, and you know, to see that this traditional way of life being wiped out, being erased under the pretext of development. And we have to ask, you know, of course no one can deny that development is bad. Of course we all want development, but we have to ask development at what cost and development in whose terms. Have the nomads voluntarily left their homes, have left their grasslands, have the Chinese government, the policymakers in Beijing, have they consulted with the local community that 
Do they have a choice? And that's a question that we have to ask everywhere, not just in Tibet, everywhere. You know, whenever there's a top-down approach, you know, to help the local communities, the first question is, is it what the local population want? And, and sadly, that's not happening in Tibet. So, so, so that's, that's with the development uh, in Tibet. And now I also want to touch briefly um, about water. You know, um, Tibet is not only uh, home to these uh, over 130 natural resources, Tibet is also called uh, Asia's water tower. You know, as Situ uh, explained earlier, 1.4 billion out of the 7 billion human population depend literally on the water that originates from the Tibetan plateau. So if you look at um, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra that flow into India that comes from Tibet, the Indus that flows into uh, Pakistan that comes from Tibet, the Irrawaddy, the lifeblood of um, Burma that originates from Tibet, uh, the Mekong and the Salvin, you know, which flows into Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and even Thailand that comes from Tibet. And even the Yangtze and um, the Yellow River the cradle of the Chinese civilization, that also comes from Tibet. And I would like to quote this famous um, quote by uh, Ismail uh, Sarah Galdin in 1995, the former um, vice president of World Bank and a public intellectual. He said that you know, if the wars in this century uh, were fought over oil, the wars of the next century will be fought over water if we do not you know, manage our approach um, on this vital and precious resource. So, so literally 1.4 billion people in 11 downstream countries are depending on the water that originate on the, from the Tibetan Plateau. And now, so as I said earlier, you know, Tibet is facing climate change. It is at the forefront of global climate change. And I'm very pleased that today, you know, you are um, the Sydney Environment Institute and the Sydney University is, you know, letting us, you know, share our stories, you know, share our stories from the front line of the global climate change, you know, stories of the real people who are, you know, um, facing these challenges. Um, and, so the Tibetans basically, you know, we live in the mountains, we live on the grasslands, but unfortunately Tibetans inside Tibet are seeing the world disappear in front of our own eyes. The glaciers on the mountains are, are, are melting, the grasslands are turning into desert. And so their resources are being extracted they have no control over the land, over the environment they own. They have no control over the natural resources. And I think it's timely that we are meeting here today because just two weeks ago, the Chinese government released its white paper on the, on the Tibetan environment. And it's very important that we look at you know, what China is saying. And here in Australia, 
and around the world. You know, China today is being praised for the work it's doing in renewable energy. Yes, you know, on some fronts they might be doing the right thing, but what China is doing in Tibet is example of where it is not doing well. And I think, you know, governments and NGOs and academics, when they research and study the environment work that China is doing, I think it's important that they also look at what they are doing in Tibet. Um, and, you know, what happens on the Tibetan plateau just does not um, affect the six million Tibetan people. You know, Tibet is such an important land, not just to the Tibetans, but also to the whole world. And so it's really important that, you know, if we are really concerned about climate change, if we are concerned about food security, if we are concerned about inequality, uh, we should also look at what's happening in Tibet. And, you know, Tibetans, um, especially the nomads, have shown, um, you know, has led the example for all of us to follow, you know, their traditional way of life, their indigenous knowledge, that the nomads are part of the solution. They are not part of the problem in Tibet. And I think that it's very important that, you know, their voices are heard. And I'm very pleased that, you know, you are giving us an opportunity to let us share our story. Um, especially, you know, in Australia uh, at this time when China is being very proactive in silencing the voices of Tibetans. Um, it happens in Tibet all the time, but now you know, it's happening around the world and, and, and in this country to a great extent. So I'm very pleased that we are you know, getting this opportunity to share our story. Thank you.